Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everybody. It's um, really, really good to be with you. My name is Mike. If I haven't met you before, along with Julia and a great group of people, we um, have the privilege of giving some leadership to, to this site, Ballon V61. So it's really, really good to be with you uh, this morning. I don't know if you have something called Version. Do, do anyone here have Version Bible app? Uh, the verse for this morning was, was a brilliant verse. Uh, Viv actually preached on this verse a couple of weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago now. And it talks about not forsaking being together, but encouraging each other all the more uh, as we see the day approaching. And I just thought, I just love being in church together. It, you don't, we don't often get these spaces um, in the week where we can just be together and actually let someone else's faith encourage us. Hopefully our faith encourage them. And there's a, there's a sense of, of, us, of something uh, beyond just us on our own happening on a Sunday together. And I was reminded of that reading that scripture this morning and just being together worshiping. So it really is so good to be together. Your faith is an encouragement to me, and uh, hopefully I can be an encouragement to you uh, as well this morning. So I have the privilege of, of kicking off a new series today, and uh, it's uh, on the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. So there's, if you kind of come to this uh, book Lots of different people have lots of different um, ways of thinking about the main theme of this book. So some would approach it and say, this is about race and nationalism, this book. That's what it's about. Others would say, it's about God's grace, his kindness in reaching out to people outside of, of the fold. Uh, others would say, um, it's about mission. It's about going and, and evangelizing and making new disciples in the light of the Great Commission of Jesus. So lots of different ways of interpreting this book. I want to say that actually it, Jonah really touches on all of these themes. We can't isolate one of them and say it's about this. Actually, all of these themes come into the equation. But in a sense, Jonah's actually a pretty difficult book to preach on. I found it quite difficult, um, I must be honest, to prepare for this. We've just heard the story so many times. And we have lots of unhelpful assumptions we also need to unlearn uh, in regard to the book of Jonah. The first of these is that we usually consider it to be a children's book. It's something that happens in children's church. And maybe even when I said the book of Jonah, you thought, why are we doing that here? Aren't, aren't the kids going to do that? Why, why are we focusing on that as, as adults? Well, I hope that wasn't your first thought, but it possibly might have been. might have been mine if I wasn't preaching on it. But the reality is, it's considered a sophisticated work of literature by those who've studied this, this uh, book. In fact, in your Bible, it literally takes up almost a page or a page and a half of your Bible. That's it. And yet those who study it say that it's, it's a sophisticated work of literature with complex literary pairing and symmetry. All sorts of things are going on in this book. So yes, kids should learn from it, but we should too. We should too. So I'm hoping to redeem something of Jonah. Uh, in this four-week series for us. Second unhelpful thing that we need to maybe unlearn is our fixation on one particular image from the book of Jonah. So if we just play a little word association game right now, 
and I said, Jonah, you... <laughs> Jonah? Great. I didn't even have time to finish the point. The problem is, the problem is, it's not actually even a whale in the book of Jonah. So the Hebrew words, which are the original language that the, the book was written in, just mean big fish. It just means big fish. So I'm really sorry if I'm, if I'm popping your um, balloon, bursting your bubble. I'm not trying to be unhelpful. But in, if that helps us to not fixate too much on that image, then, well, then hopefully that's helpful for you. It's not a whale. It is a big fish. But also to make the story about three verses out of a total of 48, which is not that many, but still way more than three, is to misplace the emphasis. One commentator actually said, people have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to notice the great God in the book of Jonah. There's a challenge for us. Let's not pass on God for the fish, as much as we may like fish. And then the last thing that we maybe need to just get over as a challenge as we encounter this book uh, are the supernatural events that we read about within it. Uh, particularly in our day as kind of 21st century moderns who are hyper-skeptical and don't necessarily expect the miraculous at every turn, uh, something like being swallowed by a big fish and staying alive for three days might prove difficult to believe. Yes? Who might think, Jonah survived three days and three nights in a fish. Impossible. That cannot happen. But if God exists... And this God can resurrect someone from the dead, which is a far greater miracle, then this episode in Jonah isn't beyond God's abilities. So again, let's not get distracted by the fish and miss what it says about God. Hopefully those are just some things we can park for a moment or approach for a moment so that we can really engage with what this book uh, is about I want to make one more quick comment uh, by way of introduction. So I'm setting up the series, so forgive me, I have to make a few uh, like setting the scene comments. So one more comment I want to make before we dive in together is about the kind of book that Jonah is. Is Jonah a parable? Is it something that is non-historical, but a parable that's supposed to help us to say something or know something about God? Is Jonah satirical? Does it kind of use stock characters for irony and deprecation to make a point, maybe a theological point, about God? Or is Jonah historical? Is it historical fact? And as it says it happened, it happened in history, and that's how we should be engaging with it or believing in it. I don't have time to get into all the nitty-gritties of this. If you go and read any commentary on Jonah, this takes up a vast section of the introductory comments, so forgive me for being quick on this. But just to say that there are some problems with treating Jonah as having no historical basis whatsoever. Firstly, because Scripture itself does seem to suggest that it is historical in some way. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we read of the prophet Jonah... Um, as existing in the history of Israel and the, the actions that he performed are mentioned in that part of Israel's history, which the book of Kings is. And then secondly, in the New Testament, we see Jonah, Jesus, referring to the sign of Jonah himself as the sign of his redemptive ministry. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. It's mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. He refers to it to speak of the significance of his own mission. 
So it can't just be mythology, it can't just be parable. Jesus' actual physical historical mission is referred to in terms of the sign of Jonah. So while I can't say for absolute certain, for absolute sure exactly where the lines fall between parable, satirical, historical, there does seem to be an interplay between all of these, but it has a historical basis, I would argue. Okay, is that helpful? I hope it's helpful. So why Jonah? Why are we going through this book um, for four weeks? Why are we spending time on it beyond what I've already said about this? Well, one of the most interesting questions to be asked at our recent preachers training last year uh, in November was from 10-year-old Reuben at the Battersea site. We had questions sent in to us, and uh, the question that came that I didn't know was from him until we asked who wrote this uh, was, why don't we teach the minor prophets at church? <laughs> Reuben, if you are at Battersea today and you are watching, we just applaud you. This is for you. And uh, I'll give a five-pound note if everyone in this room can explain what minor prophets is. Um, well done, Reuben. So we actually had plans to do it before you asked the question, but there was even more incentive when a 10-year-old had noticed that we weren't preaching enough on the minor prophets. <laughs> And then a little bit more seriously, though that is very serious, is as a team, we really believe that God is calling us into a space of, of receiving his grace afresh, of being reminded of the grace of God, that grace really is the basis of our relationship with God. Grace simply means God's unmerited, undeserved favor. It's not something we can work for. It's not something that we deserve or we earn based on good behavior, or good deeds, or saying the right things, or praying the right prayers. It's something that God initiates for us. Grace means that God is the one who initiates and moves towards us. It's God's love for us in spite of us at times. God's love for us in spite of us. And to see grace in the Old Testament is powerful, right? We sometimes think that there's a difference between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament's wrathful, judgmental, smiting people left, right, and center, we think. God of the New Testament's kind of got, undergone an extreme makeover and is very loving because he knew that in the 20th and 21st century, we'd really love to sing songs about love and forgiveness. And, but actually, it's not really like that. We see grace in the Old Testament. We see God's justice and judgment in the New Testament. It's not as easy to divide these things. And so today, I want to dive in, and I want to talk about the runaway uh, believer. So hopefully, as we read chapter one, that'll make more sense. So let's read it together, and it's going to come up on the screen. You can also turn to it um, in your Bibles if you have it with you. So Jonah chapter one. It's quite a long chapter, so I'm going to read quickly. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. 
They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us the thought so we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, and I ask that as we reflect on this together as we think about your grace in the life of Jonah, this runaway believer, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so three, three points for today. Uh, the first is I want to paint uh, a picture or give you a profile of the anti-prophet Jonah. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about Jonah's running. And thirdly, I want to talk about the consequences of his running. So profile of an anti-prophet, Jonah runs, and uh, the consequences of his running. So that's, that's what we're going to do today. So firstly, the profile uh, of an anti-prophet. So these words that we see in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, and the word of the Lord came to, dot, 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 are a typical marker of prophetic literature in the Scriptures. We see this all over the place. Uh, so, for example, we see it in God's calling of the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, the word of the Lord came to me. It's a kind of classic stock phrase of prophetic literature and narrative. So what, we're, what we can see from the beginning is that this is a prophetic book. It's presented to us as a prophetic book, but it's incredibly unusual as a prophetic book. Usually, these books record God's words through the prophet to other people, but mostly here we have a record of words about the prophet in this book. This is mostly about Jonah, not God's words through Jonah to others. So more, more on that later. What do prophets normally do? What is it that prophets normally do? We, we don't preach on prophets very regularly, right? So when we say prophet, what, what comes to mind 
for you? Well, they really only have one job description. It's to be God's spokesperson, to say the words that God gives them to say in the way that they are supposed to say it. So they proclaim God's covenant and they call Israel usually back to faithfulness to the covenant of God. They receive their commission from God and they have to act it out to the letter. Jonah does the exact opposite of what a prophet is supposed to do. When God says to Jonah, speak my message, Jonah says, no. When God says, confront the corruption and injustice in Assyria, Jonah says, no. In short, when God says, go, Jonah says, no. When God says, go, Jonah says, no. This is why Jonah is the anti-prophet. He is the opposite of everything a prophet is supposed to be. By New Testament definitions, he's also the anti-good Samaritan. The good Samaritan is someone who extends kindness and love to one's neighbor, regardless of their race and nationality in a time of need. Jonah is the opposite of this. And the story also plays out like an Old Testament version of the New Testament's prodigal son story. In the first two chapters, Jonah acts like the younger brother who runs away. And in the last two chapters, he acts like the older brother who is judgmental and hypocritical. It's a really interesting portrayal that we're given here. In all this, the narrator uses satire to contrast the usual hero, the prophet, with the true hero, God. God is the hero of the story. The book of Jonah is not actually about Jonah. It's mostly about the nature of God's grace and Jonah's and our inability to understand it. So there's our portrait of the anti-prophet. When God says go, Jonah says no. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to come back to some of these opening verses and and allow the story to unfold uh, as it's told. Jonah runs. This is what we see from these opening verses. It's as though God says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah responds, what did you say? Tarshish. And then a tug of war begins between Jonah's will and God's will. In fact, Tarshish comes up three times in verse three. It's actually quite hard to say um, that many times in in one verse, but here it is. Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish. It's almost like God saying Nineveh, Jonah saying Tarshish. Nineveh, Tarshish, Tarshish. So there's a bit of a tug of war going on here, and and this emphasis on Tarshish comes up again and again to show Jonah's intent on going in the exact opposite direction to where God is calling him to go. So if we can just get that map up on the screen, you'll see exactly what it is (laughs) that I mean. Tarshish is as far away as Jonah can conceive of going to Nineveh, literally, Nineveh is east, Tarshish is the western rim of the known world to an Israelite of the time. He literally cannot think of going anywhere further than Tarshish. He's trying to put as much distance between him and the place where God's word was revealed to him, to get away from the presence of the Lord, as we read in 1 chapter 3. One commentator actually puts it really bluntly, Jonah ran 
that he might get away from the service of God. Jonah ran that he might get away from the service of God. Anyone else ever done that? Anyone else ever felt tempted to, to get away from what God's word is or what we know it to be? I can recognize that in myself, that tension, that struggle, definitely. I remember a prayer that I prayed when I was 13 years old. I saw all my friends didn't seem to care very much for faith, and yet my family seemed to care quite a lot about it. But I wasn't quite sure what good it was doing for me. They didn't seem worried about if they were doing the right thing necessarily. I'm sure they were, but to my 13-year-old eyes, it didn't seem like it. I was torn up, cut up. Was I doing the right thing? Was I praying the right way? I wasn't sure. I don't know if that's normal for a 13-year-old, but that's what I was like. And uh, I remember praying a prayer at 13 years old, and I said, God, I'd really like to try life without you for a while. Amen. <laughs> it's quite a sweet prayer in a way. It's also a very naive prayer. But I know that feeling of wanting to distance myself, of wanting to run in the opposite direction of what I know God has revealed and what I know is true. And as I've been reflecting on this tendency, it, it seems to become more and more real the older we get, the longer we go down this road uh, in our faith, because the more life happens to us, the more disappointment we may experience, uh, the more embittered that we may become. And those two emotions, I think, are are some of the most powerful blockers for staying connected to God, bitterness and disappointment. If we don't process bitterness and disappointment in our lives, these are two emotions that can actually become lifelong states. We can live in a state of bitterness for our entire life long. We can live in a state of disappointment our entire life long. These emotions can become states, states of being, and then we become so used to them that we actually don't even know that we're supposed to resist them. And so I just wanted to put that to us this morning as, as, as these two things that, can, that we can hit up against. For Jonah, I think he is disappointed. He's coming up against a God that he didn't realize was the true God. His version of God is being challenged in his command to go to Nineveh, and he's disappointed with what he hears, and so he runs. Where might, where might disappointment or bitterness be uh, at root in our own lives and in our hearts? The scriptures actually talk about a bitter root springing up. And, and uh, what we realize about roots, and if we water them and we give them the space and the light and the oxygen, they grow into significant presence. They grow into trees that take up space, that cast their shade. Has bitterness become a root that has sprung up in any of our hearts and our lives? Has disappointment become the kind of background hum of our lives? Are any of those things causing us to run in the other direction? Well, if that is true of you, as it has been of me, then maybe we're not as unlike Jonah as we'd like to think. We aren't told exactly why Jonah runs until chapter 4, and had to I have to try very, very hard to resist going there because I'd be stealing Phil's thunder in week four. So I knew he'd be here, and, uh, and so I'll leave all of us to get the benefit of Phil's wisdom in week four. We're not told why Jonah runs until week four. We, we're meant to be kept in suspense in the story, but we are given some early hints. So let me, let me give us two of the hints that we are uh, given. Firstly, the place that Jonah was sent, Nineveh, was the capital of the superpower Assyria. 
in the ancient world. So this is highly unusual for Jonah to be sent to Assyria. Prophets normally bring God's messages to Israel, to their own people. Um, While prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos did speak against other nations, they were never actually sent to those nations um, itself. So the original readers of the book of Jonah would have recognized this as a prophetic account like no other. Jonah's mission was unprecedented in the history of Israel. So it's highly unusual, but it's also incredibly unnerving to be sent to Nineveh. Assyria was one of the most cruel, violent nations in the ancient world. So God has already said in these opening verses that that Nineveh's wickedness had come up to him, and commentators actually say it was their violence that God was casting judgment on. They were an incredibly violent nation. In in an article I read, it was really interesting, um, by a scholar called Erica Blabetrue, the article's called The Grisly Assyrian Record of Torture and Death. Okay, so that's the article. And she calls Assyrian national history as as gory and blood-curdling history as we know. Gory and blood-curdling history, as you know. For example, okay, cover your ears if you don't like gore. After capturing enemies, the Syrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as they were dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with decapitated heads of their loved ones on elevated poles down the streets, and they usually burned adolescents alive as a practice. So the Assyrians have been called, in modern terms, a terrorist state. That's what we need to be imagining in our minds here. The closest equivalent I could think of was something like ISIS. Imagine being called by God to walk into ISIS HQ and speak against it. How would you feel? And yet, it was to Assyria that God was directing his mercy. That should give us pause. That should give us pause. Can you blame Jonah for being bewildered, for being fearful, for being angry, even Assyria? How could you extend mercy to Assyria of of all the things that they've done, of what they are? How could you? Why would a military and cultural powerhouse like Assyria listen to a nobody like Jonah? Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, speaking about um, Uh, The book of Jonah says, how long, for example, would a Jewish rabbi have lasted in 1941 if he had stood on the streets of Berlin and called on Nazi Germany to repent? Powerful image. Practically, the prospects of success were close to zero, and the chances of death were really high. Secondly, Jonah runs because he can't accept God extending mercy to the Syrians, as we've mentioned. See, Jonah has a suspicion that God is sending him to Assyria, not so that it might be raised to the ground, but that it might be lifted up in forgiveness. Otherwise, why does he flee? Consider the message that Jonah's given in the very opening verses that we have here. God says to him, cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. The message is a message of judgment. If Jonah knows that God is going to judge Assyria and is confident of that, he would have happily gone. It's because he's suspicious that God won't do it that he flees in the opposite direction. 
See, he is a faithful Jew who knows what God's character is like. God has revealed himself as faithful, as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast mercy. The God of covenant is also the God of creation, who's created the whole world and all of its peoples and longs to extend his mercy to them. So Jonah, the nationalistic prophet, is ruined. His understanding of God and those who don't know him is revolutionized in this moment. See, God's mercy is deeper, wider, and greater than Jonah is able to fathom. So he runs. So he runs as far west as he can go. So the last point that I'll spend not too long on is what happens when Jonah runs? What happens when Jonah runs? Well, there's three things that follow. Firstly, there's a storm. Secondly, there's uh, unbelievers or pagans, as the text calls them. And third, God follows. So first thing that happens to Jonah is a storm follows. A storm rages that threatens the life of everyone on board the ship. He's literally put everyone's life at risk through his disobedience. The scripture says that it's sent by God, but also we can think about it as a kind of a logical consequence of his disobedience and his sin. This is what happens because Jonah has disobeyed. His actions are coming down upon his own head, but also the head of everyone uh, around him. So in this instance, we see a fascinating contrast between God's prophets and the pagan sailors. He goes down and sleeps. He disconnects and he disengages even more. And it's the pagan sailors who apparently don't know God who are calling on God and who are telling God's prophet to call on God. Jonah looks absolutely terrible in this, in this scene. And so we see what happens in these verses is that these pagans, these unbelievers who don't believe in the God of Israel, put their trust in the God of Israel to deliver them from this situation. They call on the name of Yahweh in this text. And there's kind of two levels of irony here. The first is that the pagan sailors show Jonah up in their care for foreigners and their spiritual integrity. God's prophet does not want to help his neighbors, and so he disobeys God. The pagan sailors care for Jonah, even though he has put their lives at risk and seek to obey God. Jonah looks terrible. Second, the, unbeliever, the unbelievers Jonah flees end up being in his path and turn to God anyway. See, despite Jonah's best efforts, God extends his mercy to those who do not know him. He overrules Jonah's selfishness. And then finally, we see that God is hot on the heels of Jonah. So Jonah runs, but God pursues Jonah. See, this final verse, uh, verse 17, we read, the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. We might think of that as kind of a, a judgment or a punishment, but it's not. It's never described as a judgment or punishment. It's actually described as a salvation from a watery death. God has reached out to Jonah and provided the only means of salvation that is possible, despite Jonah's desire um, to be thrown into the sea and killed rather than go to Nineveh. God sends a fish to rescue him. See, the story has been increasingly moving downward. I don't know if we noticed that in, in the reading. Joseph, not Joseph, Jonah, 
went down to Joppa. Then he went down below deck in the storm. And then he went down into the belly of the fish. It it really is a a descent. This whole story is the story of the descent of Jonah. But at his lowest point, when he literally cannot descend any further, when he's all alone, he's all alone with God. God pursues and follows him. As I've been thinking about this uh, text and we're coming into land here, is I've been thinking about the story of Francis uh, Thompson. I don't know if anyone's heard of him. He's a, he's a poet. Uh, and to help him at a time in his life with a, a nervous breakdown, he turned to opium and ultimately became addicted. And before he published his poetry and became famous uh, for that poetry, his life deteriorated to the point of sleeping on the streets of London by a Charing Cross. And he stayed on the streets as a rough sleeper for Uh, for three whole years. And in this moment um, of of kind of hitting his his belly of the fish moment, maybe, we can think of it as that, he contemplates suicide in his despair, but he's rescued by what he refers to as the hound of heaven. And in this poem, it's a profound poem, I encourage you to go and read read the whole thing, he talks about this kind of pursuit and fleeing um, between God and the human person and God being described as this kind of hound of heaven that never lets up, pursuing those whom he loves and has created. Here are the last couple of lines from from the poem. Now of that long pursuit comes on at hand the brute. That voice is round me like a bursting sea. Our fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. I love that, that kind of last sentence being the voice of God when finally he gives up the the fleeing. God says, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. See, Jonah, like Francis Thompson, is all alone with God. The hound of heaven is in pursuit with his mercy, his kindness, and his grace. We need the pursuit of God in our lives. And that's what grace is, is God's initiating love towards us, to meet us in our own descent. We're going to have to wait and see how the story of Jonah uh, pans out. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but, but what about us? What about you? What about me? Are we running in a particular area of our lives? Are we running from God? Are we running from the possibility of the existence of God? What, what might we be running from and why? Are you feeling tired? Are you feeling worn out by your own fleeing of God? I think there's an invitation here to come back. There's an invitation here for the runaways, the runaway believers, or any runaways to come back, to come back, to experience the grace of God again in our lives. I want to ask us to to stand uh, as we finish. I'd love to pray for us. I'm going to ask the bands to come up here um, and in Battersea and Westside as well. Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now. You speak to individual hearts right now across this room in Westside and Battersea. Thank you for what you've already been saying, what you've been doing. If God's been saying something to you this morning, if you just want to
engage with that. Open up your hands if you're comfortable. Stay in a space of, of attentiveness, of listening. What is God saying to you? going to wait a few more seconds. Just keep engaging, keep listening, keep asking God, what are you what are you saying to me this morning? What are you saying about your grace this morning? Don't be afraid of the silence. out with our own efforts. We've become embittered maybe or disappointed. God, I ask that you would reach in, that you would do what we can't do. As the surgeon, that you would heal our hearts where we can't do that. If all we've ever known is run, running, or would you help us to learn another way? Just sense that some, some of us may be listening right now are just going to start to feel quite emotional, and that's, that's okay. If that is you and you are sensing God move really close right now, let him do what he wants to do. Don't be afraid of the tears. Don't be afraid of heaving or laughing, whatever it is. Just, just let God come close. If there's something he's asking you to hand over, would you, would you trust, would you trust his kindness in handing that over? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.